We will begin in Mark chapter 14 today, page 1219 in your pew Bibles. It is hard for me, once I have a way that I enjoy writing sermons, to have to leave room for that Holy Spirit to just disrupt the way I think, apparently. I uh, had come up with this four-part sermon series, and I knew I wanted to spend the next three weeks, including uh, Good Friday, looking uh, at what we call the Passion of Jesus at four scenes or occasions or episodes in Jesus' final hours before he rose again. And being a, an exegetical, which is a fancy way of saying verse-by-verse verse guy, I had every intention of saying, okay, I'll do this gospel writer for that episode, I'll dissect it like I usually do, and that'll be good. And Well, as I began to select the passages, my heart settled on certain gospel authors for some of the certain words or phrases they were using, And I just first took that as, okay, well, I'm just going to select this guy for this scene. And then I would move on. But I really felt like the Lord was specific about the the words I selected. And my usual plan of attack to preach sermons word by word, verse by verse, wasn't going to work here. And so, ironically, it was this past Thursday, I was driving Calvin to Spokane for an eye appointment. Uh, that I felt the Lord tell me the most about what he wants me to say about this passage. It wasn't whenever I was studying my brains out on all the verses. It was actually whenever I guess I had made time to just shut up and and listen and listen to Calvin too. And uh, I do intend to to hone in on verses 49 and 52, uh, perhaps not in the way I usually hone in on it, but just so we understand the entire scene, I invite you to stand and and read with me verses 43 through 52 of Mark 14. Haven't been in Mark since the fall of 2017 when I last finished going through the whole book of Mark. But <clears throat> We read together. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived accompanied by a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead lead him away securely. Going directly to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And one of the bystanders, which I should add, John's gospel informs us, this is Peter, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus asked the crowd, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would an outlaw? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But this has happened, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. One young man who had been following Jesus was wearing a linen cloth around his body. They caught hold of him. But he pulled free of the linen cloth and ran away naked. And then on that remark, let's pray. Father, we do come to this passage as we near 
Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And we thank you that your gospel writers, all of them, have included an examination on your final hours before you died and resurrected. Help us to see what you want us to see today through the reading of your word and the studying of it. Father, help us to even understand this last bizarre uh, note that Mark makes. Father, help us to grow because of the things we hear. Help us to be more like Jesus because of it. I pray that we would have open ears and hearts and ears to hear your word. Holy Spirit, we cannot do this without you, nor should we try. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us for righteous living. Uh, Not because you're an angry taskmaster directing us to do so, but because you love us. You loved us first. And help us to have genuine, true love for you and to serve you because of it. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. You may be seated. At first glance, the verses that we are considering look like verses of betrayal and abandonment. Do they not? Uh, This is the last mention of Judas in Mark's account. But in Matthew chapter 27, or Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 1, it tells us Judas's fate beyond that. But beyond the audacity and the tragedy and the sting and pain of Judas, that was verses 43 through 45 in our passage, to be the one to turn in the Messiah to his death, we cannot overlook that every other disciple is just as guilty. Right? Peter (coughs) denies Jesus. Judas doesn't deny Jesus, but he just uses his knowledge of him to gain money, whereas Peter denies that he knew Jesus altogether to save his own skin. In fact, it seems they all did. We, We read that everyone deserted him and fled. Betrayal and abandonment. You know, maybe... Maybe it happens to every Christian as they get older, maybe not. Maybe it's who you know, but it just seems like lately for me, I've met more people than I've ever wanted to meet of people who have abandoned the faith. Two pastors in the past two weeks have been on my radar. I guess now two used to be pastors. Bitterness had crept in. Bitter, uncaring, nasty people had been under their care and they said, whatever, I'm done, it's not worth it. If this is God's family, then I want no part of it. What's the draw to be here? And they left. Now, we have wonderful cliches for the likes of those people. Your faith was in people, not in God. And don't shame God's bride that way, and so forth. But at the end of the day, all I can do is say to myself, I really have no pearls to give. They're acting a little bit like swine, not to make them guilty in that sense. It's all sad. The whole thing is sad. It's sad the way they were treated. It's sad that I don't have an answer as to what God could be doing in their suffering or what He could have done if they stayed the course. It's it's sad altogether. And then, also on my mind, have been Christians who seem to slowly be able to compromise. Christians who have been disturbed by the world's mentality of 
The views you hold are backward. They're unloving. You just don't want people to be happy. You don't support these lifestyle choices. But if I believe what Jesus says, which I do, which is a good thing since I'm your pastor, then I want all people to be fulfilled in the best way possible. Thriving in the best way possible. And if the Creator says, you might be tempted with these sins, but it will end in your death and in your defeat. Right? If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you deny yourself, now hear that. Deny yourself. What does Jesus mean by that? Deny yourself. Give up on your choices that you think make you happy and follow me, says Jesus. Then you will be fulfilled. But people seem to still be betraying Jesus. Abandoning Him. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, that the Word of God is like a lion in a cage. All we need to do is open the cage and let the Word defend itself. Doesn't mean everyone will agree with the Word. Nah, you're still backwards and unloving and intolerant. That's your opinion, but I'll fear God instead. Betraying. Abandoning Jesus. Judas wanted a different leader. And when Jesus didn't deliver on what Judas wanted, Jesus was only good for money. Peter was ready to go to war for Jesus, pulled out his sword, but when Jesus wasn't going to fight, Peter wasn't ready to die. The disciples weren't ready to be arrested with the Messiah. Only were they ready to rule with Him. Betrayed and abandoned. But I said, this is what it appears at first glance to be a spiritual truth about. Betrayal and abandonment. But as I meditated over this passage from Mark, and I felt the Lord say to me about this Easter series, there are four gospel accounts about the passion. passion, And I want you to look at the four scenes from all four authors for four sermons. And I felt the Lord pick this one and hone in on the fact that everyone's leaving. And not to dismiss their guilt here, not to dismiss their betrayal of the Messiah, but I felt the Lord say to me that they were leaving because Jesus is the only one who can take what's about to happen. To use a verse not yet written down at this point from a disciple not yet converted at this point, Paul would say, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him who are called according to His purpose. That includes sin. That includes betrayal and abandonment. What we know is this. Jesus foresaw their abandonment. We see this earlier in Mark 14 when Jesus not only predicted Judas's betrayal, but also the disciples. And He says in Mark 14, 27, we read... <clears throat> You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know, Jesus knew the Gospel of Mark before it was written. Then everyone deserted Him and fled. As the final men encircle Him in His arrest, He declares again, but this has happened that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Or as some translations say, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus knew that He would be abandoned, betrayed, and handed over to the chief priests. 
Now we're going to get so confused that I was a little bit, but I trust you and I trust the Holy Spirit. But there is this duality to it. On the one hand, we, we obviously have reality taking place. We have people making decisions. We have disciples who had been with Jesus for upwards of three and a half years or so suddenly deciding, I want out. I can't go through this with him. I can't bear this part. But then there is this other half taking place. There is this supernatural war that is engaging. There is this tapestry of reality that appears double-sided. A, a marriage... See, no, no doubt we have a, a dramatic series of physical events transpiring here, and it breeds many emotions. It's full of sorrow and in, injustice and violence. But then on the other side of this marriage is the supernatural. What we can't see. The unseen world. A world we seem to be less able to grasp than maybe many previous generations in the West who weren't so tied to the materialistic and what we can perceive with our natural senses or observe with science. But it is a world the Bible is unapologetic in affirming its existence. I'll give you an example from the Gospel of John real quick. John apparently recalls hearing from the mouth of Jesus something in John 12, and it's on Palm Sunday, a Sunday we're celebrating next week. Jesus comes into Jerusalem knowing why he's there ultimately, knowing that he would face a night like the night we're looking at in Mark only days later. And upon realizing that these final moments of his life are set in motion, what does he declare? Now judgment is upon this world. Now the prince of the world will be cast out. What? Not ignoring the other supernatural fact that God had just spoken from heaven right before this passage. And some things never change. Some people deluded themselves and says, well, that was just the thunder. It sounded like words. <laughs> but let's not get too off, off topic. What is Jesus talking about here? He mentions something else is happening. There is not a physical, literal army of judges with gavels coming to say, we're about to judge the world. There is not, or wasn't, a physical, world-recognized leader of the time about to be sent into exile or executed. Nevertheless, Jesus was speaking of realities in the supernatural world. While Jesus was about to, again, undergo a very dramatic series of events in the physical, the supernatural world, the unseen world, the eternally coexisting with our world, was about to undergo something as well. And this is culminating. Jesus is threading the needle <coughs> once again. On the night he's being betrayed and arrested, he is declaring, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Excuse me. <clears throat> In both the supernatural and the unseen world, and obviously the seen and physical world, are coexisting at once. You know, soldiers were given orders from the chief priest. Judas had facilitated the evil resources of his heart enough to let Satan enter in. Judas had taken money for the knowledge of Jesus and was handing him over to his enemies. Peter and the disciples had given into fear and abandoned Jesus and left him alone. And even so, and amid all this, amid all the choices that people were making for themselves, 
perhaps most unwittingly to the persons involved, and most surprisingly, Jesus declares, but this has happened that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. What? No, wait, Jesus, the soldiers are coming because the chief priest, this has happened that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. But Judas, he was the one who went to the chief priest. He got some money in exchange for... Jesus had something to say about that too. Mark 14, 21, in the middle of the Last Supper, Jesus has this very interruptive declaration, something you don't like to hear at Thanksgiving. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about Him, but woe to that man by whom He is betrayed. It would be better for Him if He had not been born. Here it is again. This marriage of providence, supernatural, transcendent wave of history, and then this physical observable events. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about Him. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled, right? It's going to happen. It was written about and how it would happen. It's part of God's plan. There will be a betrayer. But at the same time, sympathy is given. Blame is given. Judas's own personal choices are taken into account and because they are, he has condemned himself. It would be better for him if he had not been born, says Jesus. And we come back to this. Everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone is to blame. Cowards, some might think. Disciples, friends, well, their true colors are shown. And as I said, Jesus has called this one out beforehand. Again, he said, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know where that's from? Well, first of all, let's answer this. Who is the I in that prophecy? I will strike the shepherd. God. God will strike the shepherd. This is even seen when Jesus makes prophecies of this final passion in the gospel. You know, in all the gospel accounts, we have three decisive recorded moments of Jesus prophesying His death and resurrection. And the last occurrence in Mark is Mark 10, pages uh, 12, 11 in your pew Bibles, verses 33 and 34, where Jesus says, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Newsflash, that's what's happening in our passage right now. They will condemn Him to death and will deliver Him over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans, verse 34, who will mock Him and spit on Him, And flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. But I want you to hear back in the first part of verse 33. The passive statement. Will be delivered. This is a a passive verb with an unnamed giver. That is, the object that's being delivered is the Son of Man. The recipients are the chief priests and the scribes, but who is the giver? It has been called a divine passive because the giver is God. It is the same I in the prophecy of I will strike the shepherd. That is taken directly from Zechariah 13, verse 7. God declares, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Well, this is interesting. Now, if we don't know our gospel accounts and if we don't understand Christianity, it's interesting. God says He intends 
to awaken his sword against his shepherd, against the man who is his companion. Why? What for? You might be saying, well, this seems a bit of a dysfunctional relationship. God says the shepherd's his companion, but he's also bringing a sword to strike him with. Now, we see a little discussion about this in Mark. Earlier in Mark 14, right before this, the rest party shows up, we find Jesus praying. And verses 35 and 36 says that he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour would pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. This isn't the first time in the book of Mark where there is talk of a cup. In fact, two disciples who had just fled in our scene, James and John, once had a request of Jesus. It was rather untactful and rather selfish. It's actually right after Jesus had given that third prophecy that we just looked at. Jesus had given this prophecy, I will be betrayed, I'll suffer, I'll die, I'll rise again. And it's almost as if James and John say, yeah, 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 whatever. Hey, quick question. <laughs> Can we rule with you, Messiah? You know, be your right and left-hand man. What does Jesus say? You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I will drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I will undergo? The cup. In the Old Testament, the cup was the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah talks about it in his 25th chapter. If you want homework later on, he's told to give this cup of wrath to every nation, including their own. Isaiah talks about it in his 51st chapter. Isaiah is writing by this chapter to a nation that is in exile. A nation that has seen wrath poured out on Jerusalem. Its city was burned to the ground. Its temple was destroyed. Its leaders were chased and killed. And in exile, so far away from the temple that the Jews did their service at, Isaiah 51, verses 17 through 22 tells us, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury, you who have drained the goblet to the dregs, the cup that makes men stagger. Among all the sons she bore, there is no one to guide her. Among all the sons she brought up, there is no one to take her. These pairs have befallen you. Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will grieve for you? Who can comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore now hear this, you afflicted one, drunken, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, even your God who defends his people. See, I have removed from your hand the cup of staggering, from the goblet, the cup of my fury. You will never drink again. God promises through Isaiah that salvation is coming. A salvation that says this wrath you have endured here will no longer need to be endured by God's people. Take this cup from me, says Jesus. This cup of wrath, this cup of the wrath of God that was coming. We talk about this this two-sided tapestry. This side of physical things, Judas betraying. 
the arrest party coming, but in the spiritual side of things, wrath is coming. The cup of wrath that the law and the prophets have warned about, the day of the Lord, the judgment, the wages of sin, the curse of the law, it's colliding with the real world. And it's become from words on the page to literal boots on the ground. The boots of the guard of the temple, the boots of the betrayer. Your sin, my sin, the sins of the world are responsible for these boots. You know, we never grow up in some ways. I hate it when I have to make warnings to my kids. Why? Because then it means I have to follow through. Do this. If you don't, that will happen. Who's the unlucky guy who has to make that happen? Many of you, maybe you've been there and it hurts. You're told, you need to stop your addiction to this drink, to this food, this habit in your life, or you're going to have a heart attack. You're going to have a stroke. Too much of this substance leads to the medical condition. (coughs) And a day comes and you didn't quit that addiction. The medical condition happens. It's too late. It's not news for you. It shouldn't be. It's just horrific. It's a horrific reality that you should have anticipated because you knew about it. You just thought it wouldn't happen to you. Jesus had just finished praying, take this cup from me, but now the cup is tipping. Wrath is coming. The sins of the world have been committed and it was payment time. Then everyone deserted him and fled. He was alone to face the cup. But he must, he must be alone. This is where, in the physical sense, sure it is sad. The disciples are to be blamed. They left their Lord alone in the darkest hour. It shouldn't have been. But spiritually seeking, it must have been. Christ must do this alone. Everyone must desert him and flee. The author of Hebrews states that Christ can take it because he was and is perfect. Whereas high priests who gave offerings at the temple must offer sacrifices for themselves, having been made perfect, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The author would go on to state, such a high priest truly befits us, one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for sin once for all when he offered up himself. He must do this alone. He is the perfect, sinless sacrifice. One of those who fled is, in fact, Peter. The denier was met by Jesus, as we know, after Jesus resurrected. You could say he was reinstated. He became a leader in the church. He wrote letters, and among those letters he writes, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This is the reason he must do this alone. A perfect, sinless sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous. There was no one else righteous to drink the cup that Jesus drank. And again, I I do not dismiss the guilt, the shame, the cowardice on behalf of those who left Jesus 
in his darkest moments. Nevertheless, we also should know that Jesus is not here for any other reason except for his deciding to be here. I brought up this passage from Zechariah. What is up with that? What is God striking the shepherd, the one he loves, the companion? Nevertheless, he has a sword against him. But Jesus does not see this striking as hatred or as opposition. Rather, we hear from Jesus in John 10, 17 and 18. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life in order to take it up again. Now listen to this. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord. He has authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And so, though wrath is coming, though Judas has delivered him, though the arrest party is here, though Jesus has prayed, take this cup from me, wrath has come, it's happening, and it's all happening under the authority of this man Jesus. It's happening because Jesus loves the Father and the Father and Jesus love the sheep. The shepherd is stricken. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. The shepherd is being stricken. The sheep are scattering, but the shepherd is remaining in place. Because he's the only one who can endure the very wrath of God that is tipping over on him. He's laying himself down for the sheep. But here's what I wonder. I wonder if like James or like John, you've wanted to be in on what Jesus was doing, but in the wrong way. See, James and John didn't know what they were asking, but sometimes I wonder if we forget that this is the gospel. I wonder... If in a different way than these apostles at Jesus' darkest hour, you and I need to flee the wrath. I wonder if we sometimes find ourselves there in Jesus' darkest moment, the cup is tipping, and we think we must endure. We think these stains are so dirty and so deep that I must need to pay for a little bit of it of myself. But Jesus says, no. Jesus says, flee the wrath. Can you drink the cup I drink? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is a gift. Jesus bore the cup that you and I deserved. Jesus did it not out of obligation, but out of complete authority to lay his life down and to pick it up again. Jesus is the good shepherd who when stricken and the sheep scattered, he stayed back and he laid down his life for the sheep and he did it for us. He did it in grace for us. And I wonder if sometimes we still try to play our own Savior. I I wonder if sometimes we wonder, God, you saved me, but this trial I'm undergoing, am I to share in your sufferings of God's wrath for my sins? Is this punishment? Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, your sins are paid for. The wrath of God was satisfied. We should sing a song about that. 
while the disciples all deserted him and fled, and perhaps they shouldn't have, how dare them, something tells me that in the same token, they never could have endured what was about to happen. Indeed, they weren't supposed to. Christ must do this alone. Then there is this one interesting anecdote. In fact, only Mark includes it in this episode. We read it again. One young man who had been following Jesus was wearing a linen cloth around his body. They caught hold of him, but he pulled free of the linen cloth and ran away naked. Why at it? Many have asked. Matthew, Luke, John, they don't mention this at all. Mark is believed to be written in large part from dictation of Peter. So did Peter remember this? Oh, this is an interesting thing, Mark. Just let's include that weird episode. I think, like many, that this man is Mark. Acts 12.12 informs us that the author Mark has a well-to-do family that lives in Jerusalem. We don't know the story of Mark's conversion. It could be that Mark had been around and near Jesus' teaching. Perhaps he was asleep whenever he heard the guard, the wrath of God, trampling through the city, and he followed to see what would happen. It would explain his clothing attire. He was sleeping. But why, Holy Spirit, why this picture of a man fleeing naked? And as I thought about this, the wrath of God descending upon Jesus, everyone deserting him and fleeing him, he must be alone to face the wrath of God. And then this picture of naked, shame, exposed, leaving so as not to be caught along with Jesus as he's taken into custody, guilty. Perhaps it was Mark in a humble sort of way, confessing as no doubt Peter had to confess to Mark as Peter revealed. So I denied him. Perhaps Mark couldn't let it go. I was there too. I could have stopped what was happening, or at least I could have been with him in his final hours, but I got away too. I had to do it naked. (laughs) And I wonder if the picture is this. You know, the author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing soul of spirit and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, I wonder if as, if as Peter gave Mark the word of God and as you and I hear the word of God, and as we note the sound of boots and swords trampling through the garden coming for Jesus was wrath meant for you and me, I wonder if you and I are forced to examine ourselves. I wonder if you and I, like Mark, maybe realize how naked and exposed we are to God. He knows everything you and I have done. If you and I are harboring sins, keeping them secret to other people, they are not secret to God. Again, perhaps Mark heard of Peter's denial. Mark said to himself, I need to give Jesus my account too. I must confess my own sins. Not because Mark had things to do to be forgiven, Nor did he have a price to pay, nor did he have any humiliation to endure in order to truly be saved. Not that, but in view of what Jesus was doing for Mark, maybe he owed it to him. You know, in another garden, after another sin had transpired, maybe not denying Christ or abandoning Christ to leave him alone to face an arrest, but another sin happened where the sinners realized afterward too that they were naked. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew 
They were naked, so they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. Ashamed, exposed before God. You see me. You see what I've done. Shame. Cover it up. Don't let God see. He's not that smart. (laughs) And you know the story. God comes and right away He plans. He plans to bring wrath upon all evil. He plans to bring redemption. He promises a son to slay the serpent. And as Jesus hung upon that cross in tattered clothes, almost naked no doubt, but covered in blood, bruised, heaving His body, trying to breathe, having been flogged and whipped and beaten, having had to carry that massive cross through town before collapsing under its weight, Scripture says it was His joy set before Him to endure the cross. And He scorned its shame. Jesus takes your shame at the cross. Jesus took the shame of Mark, if indeed, if that was the man, at the cross. He not only took your sin, but He took your condemnation. He took your shame. Boldly, you can approach His throne of grace. By grace, you have been saved. It is a gift of God, not of yourself. At this dark hour of Christ, His disciples all deserted Him and fled. Of course they did. They must. Let's pray. Father, if there's anything that 2,000 years of church history and all the splits and all the breaks in denominations and all the people arguing with one another and leaving and planting new bodies as if that were possible, it tells us this, that we can know the Word of God and still miss something. We can know what you did at that cross and still be confused. Father, thank you that you show us what you do with sinners abandoning and betraying you. What you show us is that you must bear this alone. It was the wrath of God for all mankind and all their sins. Nobody else could take it. Thank you again that you take it. We're sorry that it was our sins who put that put you there. We know that the, cap, that the cup of wrath was due to us. But the gospel is that you substituted yourself in our place. Thank you that you are a good shepherd that would lay your life down for the sheep. Have we ever stopped to think about that? How many sheep herders do we know? Oh, there's a wolf coming. Well, let me go sacrifice myself for that dumb sheep over there. But that is what you've done. Thank you, Father, for that. Help us to live in light of that. Help us to be willing to walk in the light now because you've scorned the shame. You've taken away our shame. A lot of us may have experience, be experiencing shame or embarrassment. I can't let other people know what I'm going through. They'll laugh and ridicule me. Well, that may be so, but you won't. Please help us to walk in the light with you. Father, as we think about this potluck, we ask that you would please Bless the food to our bodies. Bless the conversation. Not only bless the hands that prepared it, but bless the entire bodies. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the time we have together to be in communion with you and with one another. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.